You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful.
Uh, John recorded a bunch over these last few chapters we've been going through of things Jesus said that night to disciples, ways that he prepared them for what was about to unfold and for what would await them even in the years to come. And even we saw him praying for us, uh, praying for his disciples, those who would put their trust in him. Uh, We saw him doing all these things, but now John's going to pick back up the pace. Uh, There's been a lot of red letters in your Bible. If you have a red letter Bible, the last several chapters have all been red letters. And now there's going to, that's the words Jesus spoke. Um, But now we're going to see action start to unfold. And we're actually going to go somewhere. People are going to come. There's going to be interaction uh, that takes place. This is, this takes place late, like I mentioned at the beginning of of my time here. Uh, It comes late in the night on Thursday night. After Jesus has spent hours with his disciples, it's probably the middle of the night. Uh, Jesus has taught them. He's prayed with them and for them. It's Thursday night. It's Passover night. So they're around Jerusalem. Jerusalem would have been slammed, packed with people uh, for the Feast of Passover. And it's been a volatile week. If you piece back through all the stories uh, that, that have taken place even that week in Jerusalem, Jesus has kind of been stirring up the pot. He's been uh, purposely trying to provoke opposition in some ways to him. And now we're going to see one of the men who was his disciple, who had left earlier in that night, as Jesus had been talking, we're going to see one of his disciples, Judas, now return to him. And we're going to see them in a different place, but we're going to see Judas come back. Uh, The angel is going to be in the middle of the night, late in the night. So let's read this together, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll walk back through this and see what the Spirit has to say about this passage. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And we'll see next week how the story continues to show. That's Jesus and the events that we're going to see. This is the word of God, and it has much to teach us. We, we see there at the end of the, the, this passage, this section for today, Jesus referencing that cup uh, that he was supposed to drink, that, that was for him to consume. And so what I want us to see from this text today is first to see that Jesus lifted up his cup. Like he didn't avoid it. He picked it up. He lifted it up to drink it. 
But I also want us to see by the end that he helps us lift our cups as well. That, that, that by his example and by his power, when we have bitter cups that are placed before us, he enables us and he helps us to willingly pick those up and drink from them. So first, though, and the primary thing I want us to see from this text is how Jesus lifted up his cup. What does that mean? What's he talking about when he says that there's this cup that the Father has given him that he must drink? What is he speaking of there? So I want to first say what this cup was, what, what Jesus seems to very clearly be speaking about here in verse 11 when he says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This was not, I hope this goes without saying, but this was not a physical cup. It's not that there was some cup just sitting somewhere in Jerusalem that he needed to go find and, and literally drink it down his literal physical throat. But this was a symbol. It was a, it was a symbolic picture that, that he was using that he wasn't just making up. It was something that had been embedded even in the Old Testament, something that would have been in their scriptures that as, as Jewish men and women, they would have been reading and hearing from the time that they were little. There was this idea embedded of cups that God would have. And the cup that, that Jesus is speaking of here seems to very clearly be the one that's described in the Old Testament as the cup of God's wrath. If you look back at passages, when you have time, if you'd like to, you can look at passages like Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. The prophet Isaiah, long before Jesus came, talked about the cup of his wrath, the cup of God's wrath, and he called it the cup of staggering. Like that when, when people consumed it, it would have this, not this weak effect, but this overpowering effect, this crushing effect on them when they would consume this cup of God's wrath. In Psalm chapter 57, verse 8, the psalmist wrote this. He said that in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the that's not a pleasant picture of a cup. It's this cup that is foaming with wine that God is going to make the wicked drink. The, 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 the cup that is full of his wrath and his anger, his judgment towards sin. C.J. Mahaney wrote this in, in his book, The Cross-Centered Life. He said that this cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. That's the cup Jesus is talking about drinking. It, it, he's drank pleasant cups with his people, and we'll see later that he offers up now a cup of blessing to drink. But this cup that he's saying is set before him, that he's saying he must drink, that's given to him to drink, is the cup of God the Father's wrath, like his anger, his hatred of sin amongst human beings and amongst even us. And I note to you how Jesus phrases this. He says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What he was about to endure was not just suffering at the hands of Pilate or these soldiers who are going to come to him or Judas who would betray him or any of these people who would shout taunt and scoff at him the next morning. But what he was, this cup was given to him by God the Father. He's the one who's handing it to Jesus. He's the one who's setting it before him to drink because it's his wrath. It's his anger for human sin. And Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is a 
simple question, and if you've been around church, you know the answer to this, but did that cup of God's wrath, was it filled up because of Jesus' wrath? No, there is not an ounce in that cup of God's wrath for sins of Jesus because there are none. Like if anyone did not deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath, it was Jesus. All of us would deserve to drink of Jesus. Jesus deserved that cup to be empty. But that cup of God the Father's wrath for human sin is handed to him. So God the Father is saying, this is for you to drink. And you did not earn this. You did not deserve this. It was the sins of people like me and people like you. But he is giving it to Jesus. And so knowing that, then, I want us to walk back through this text from the beginning and see how Jesus approaches this cup, how he thinks about it, how he comes near to it and actually brings himself to consume it, to, to drink it down. And so first I would point out to us, and I'll, I'll use some of the imagery that we can relate to of when we see a cup set before us that's disgusting to us, whether it's a triminic cup or a mirror's milk or whatever gross thing. There's processes that if we're going to drink it, we, come, we need to go through. And I think we see even Jesus with this infinitely more important cup. We see him go through some of these things. I would say first we see in this text from John is that Jesus sees the cup set before him. He knows it's there. It's not a mystery. It's not hidden from him. He knows that the cup is there. Uh, if you think back to when you were a little kid, I have memories of this. When I see medicine being poured out for me to drink, and like my mom or dad set it on the counter, I see that thing and my eyes start to get real big, like, oh no, not again. Like I got to drink this thing again. This is so gross. And uh, Jesus sees, he knows that this cup is being poured out for him to drink. He, he knows that it's coming. He's, it has been far in the distance for a while. Like he's said numerous times in the book of John, my time has not yet come. The hour has not yet arrived. He knew it was coming, but it was still a ways off. But now this night, he knows it's imminent. Uh, he knows that that cup has been poured out and is ready to consume. It's not far in the future anymore. It is a few hours away. And so he sees it. So if you look at verse 4, for example, and what we read through, John recorded this. And he said things like this similarly before. He says that then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forth and said. Jesus knew what was going to take place on the night that he died. He knew it full well. He saw, he, if anyone knew God the Father's hatred for sin, the, the, the wrath of God towards sin, it was Jesus. As God the Son, he had maybe in eternity past helped, it, it wasn't a literal cup, but if you can think of it this way, helped shape the cup and form the cup and knew how much God the Father hated sin. And so when he says stuff like, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? And he sees it coming, he knows how awful it is. It's not a mystery to him. It's not some unknown thing. that He knows how awful it is. He sees this cup set before him. And he knows that it's imminent now. It's just hours away from now. So he sees it, but knowing what that cup contains, knowing how awful it is, the, the suffering that he would endure at the hands of God the Father for our sins, Jesus does not run away from this. Like he doesn't steer clear of it. When we see medicine put out on the counter as kids, we might conveniently go to our room, or we might try to knock it over, or some, we might try to do something to get out of that, to get away from it. But Jesus sees it, 
and he doesn't shrink back. Jesus, when he sees that cup, if we want to think in physical terms, he approaches the cup of brokenness. Like he, he doesn't walk away from it. He, if anything, walks closer and closer and closer to it. We see this a few places in the narrative of John records John. I would point you back to the start of this story that he records for us. Did you note where Jesus goes at Passover? They had been in this upper room. Uh, they had they've spent a lot of time there outside Jerusalem, uh, eating, te- him teaching them, praying together that night. But now they leave. And it says that Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And it says, note verse 2, because we can miss this. It says, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. You could read right past that and not think about this. But if Jesus knows that his death is coming, if he wanted to not die, if he wanted to avoid these soldiers, if he wanted to be hidden in secret, he would not have gone to this garden. It was a garden where they would go often. I don't know what their disciples' meetings were like and whatnot, or where, they, but they regularly went to this place outside Jerusalem. Enough that Judas knew pre-internet, pre-telephones, pre-satellites, he knew where they would be. And Jesus went there not to hide, but to be found. That's why he went there. It was the middle of the night, and Jesus goes on purpose to a place to be found by Judas. To be found by these soldiers that he knows are going to torment him. He is not running away from the cup. Like he is going to a familiar place to be found. So these soldiers show up. There's probably a few hundred of them. We can piece together by this term in verse 3, this band of soldiers that come with Judas. And they come to this garden that we know from other gospels is called Gethsemane. They come to this garden. And then you see again in verse 4 another indication that Jesus is approaching it. He's not steering clear from it. Verse 4, it says, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, note this, came forward said to them, whom do you seek? This is in the middle of the night. So they had torches that maybe they could have seen. Uh, but if Jesus wanted to hide in the garden, it would have been no secret when there's hundreds of men coming and they have swords apparently. They would have been loud. They've been on the hunt for Jesus. I doubt they were being very careful. And they come to this garden and instead of Jesus standing there, instead of him just running away and trying to escape from these men, John records for us that Jesus came that Jesus stepped forward he wasn't like someone running from the police trying to hide he is someone turning himself in he's someone who is saying here I am whom are you seeking he's the one who starts the conversation in the garden revealing that he's there revealing that they have indeed found him and so Jesus is he's approaching the cup he's taking steps toward it not away from it and that should just make us wonder How could he bring himself to do that? I would have been running like a a scared little kid away from that. I would have been trembling, running away from the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus, knowing full well how awful it is, is taking step after step after step closer to it. He doesn't just see it, but he approaches it. 
And as the reality, I think, of this cup and its contents is getting closer and closer, and as he's stepping closer to it, and is now face to face with men who are going to arrest him, and he knows they're going to put him to death. Jesus may, in this last moment, we think, may feel tempted to just leave it there, to leave the cup sitting on the table and say, I'm not, I can't bring myself to drink this. I thought that I could, but there it is. I see how awful it is, and as it's getting closer, and as I'm stepping closer to it, I don't want anything, I don't want to drink it. Some of the other gospel records outside of John, because John was probably the last gospel writer to write his, some of the earlier accounts that John would have been very familiar with record that Jesus, even this night in that garden, is praying to God the Father, if there's any other way other than me drinking this cup, he even uses that language, if there's any other way, let's do that. But there's not another way. Jesus knows that. He knows that the only way for our cup to be emptied is for his to drink it, is for him to take it down physically. And so Jesus, he, he approaches the cup, but now in our mind's eye, we can imagine him picking up the cup, like him lifting it up. He sees it. He's come close to it. He knows how awful it is, but he picks it up. When we have gross things set before us, we have these instincts in us sometimes when it comes time to actually pick it up and put it towards our mouth, we have gag reflexes. We have things, just mental blocks that keep us from actually doing that and saying, I'm going to drink this thing. But Jesus has none of that. He overpowers any impulse that would be within him to gag or to push this cup away, to refuse to drink it. He picks it up. And you can see this voluntary nature of Jesus picking up the drink. Nobody is putting it down Jesus' Like he is the one who's saying, I will pick this up and I will drink it. He is, John records this story in such a way, and he was there when it happened. He wants us to know that Jesus is in charge of all of this. Like there is nobody, Judas, not these soldiers, not anybody who is making Jesus do this, who is opening his mouth and pouring it down his throat. Jesus is willingly picking it up and saying, I will drink and you see de- details that, that point this out to us, this voluntary nature of Jesus, even here in the Garden of Eden, as he's confronted with these soldiers, you see Jesus is in charge of this. Look, for example, uh, when Jesus asks them in verse 4, whom do you seek? So he's initiating it, and they answer him, Jesus of Nazareth. And then Jesus says to them, I am he. Then you see in verse 6 that when Jesus said that to them, when he said, I am he, did you notice this? These hundreds of men, it says they drew back and fell at his feet. They ran. These men came to arrest him. These were some of the most, definitely the most powerful men in Jerusalem on that weekend. They were maybe there to, to... corral any crowds that might erupt into riots, things like that. These were powerful men. They had authority from the government, and they come to arrest Jesus. And when he says, I am he, all of them who had heard this fall at his feet. Like they, they, they step back. They likely kneel. What is going on here? There, there's a few things. One might have just been how Jesus said that, like the tone or inflection of it. We don't know. Maybe this had this effect on these men in mass that, whoa, Like, this is a unique person. This is a unique man. But it could also be just by the words that he said, where he says, I am he. 
Like when you, I don't usually mention original language and things that this was written in Greek. But when Jesus says that, when he says, whom do you seek? They say Jesus of Nazareth. When he says, I am he, it could be a way that he's just saying, yep, that's me. Or it could also be, it would have been phrased the very same where he would have said, I am. Like that's how they would have, those words were how they would have said the name of the Lord God in the Old Testament, I am. When Jesus says those words, and some of these men at least would have been Jews, these chief priests and the servants that were there with them, it, it could have very well been that Jesus was communicating to them his godhood, his divinity, even as they're coming to arrest him and tie him up. He's wanting to indicate to them, whether it was through his tone or whether it was through his words, I am in charge here. Like, I'm the one who created you, man. Like, I know everything about you. I know your sin. I know every detail of your life. I'm in control. You are not. And whatever it is, they get the message at least for a moment. They, they fall back. They, they, they stumble backwards. And Jesus could have had every right to take that cup of God's wrath and pour it down their throats. The people would have audacity to come and arrest him. Like the Son of God, as they're kneeling down, stumbling back from who he is, he could have poured it down their throats, and they'd have every right to do it. He presses on with the plan with the, he's agreed upon with the Father and what he's glad to do, saying, I will take this cup. Like, I will drink this cup, even though it's not mine to drink. So these soldiers are not making Jesus drink this cup of God's wrath. And I want to point out as well, and you may not initially see him here in this text, but Satan is not making Jesus drink down this cup either. Like sometimes we think that this is like Satan manipulating things and getting Jesus to suffer. If if it's some master plan of his, and maybe he thought it was. But Satan is not making Jesus do this as well. I I want you to think for just a moment, do the mental exercise with me to compare this scene that we just read and that we're looking at today with what happened in the Garden of Eden. Because I don't think it's on accident that this took place in a garden. That Jesus went here in the middle of the night to a garden that's described as a garden with his disciples. So back in the Garden of Eden, you read near the very beginning of the Bible, the very first human beings, Adam and Eve, they were put into this garden to live there. And God had given them commands to follow, one in particular, about what they should not eat. And who came into the garden? The serpent did. Satan and the serpent. We find out later in Scripture. And he approaches these human beings who God has placed there. And he tempts them to disobey God. Did God really say that you don't have to, that you shouldn't eat that fruit? And he points out to them how desirable that fruit is. How appealing it is to the eyes. Those are things that he is trying to say that it will gain you. And he wants them to see how desirable that fruit is, and he tells them they will not die if they eat that fruit, even though God said that they should. How do Adam and Eve respond to that? They decrease and fall prey to the serpent. So they do. It's very temptation. They decrease, fall prey to him. They plunge in the deep end. That we still read the the story thousands and thousands of years later. And what happens here? garden of Gethsemane you might not see Satan in this passage but who is presumably leading these men into the garden Jesus right do you remember if you were here a few months ago I said it's taken us a few months to go through just what happened in the course of a couple hours back in John chapter 13 
we saw that Satan entered into Judas. Like that, that he had become so affected, Judas had become so affected and twisted by Satan that Satan entered into him. And so who comes leading these men into this garden this time is a Satan-infested uh, Satan-possessed individual named Judas. But Satan, in a sense, is walking up to Jesus in this way as he's searching for him. And he's searching for him in this way. And he approaches Jesus. And I don't think he was so much tempting him to disobey, but he was perhaps taunting him. I've often wondered, and John doesn't record this, but so when Judas kissed Jesus on the cheek, I wonder what things he may have said to him. What things he may have said to him. And he wasn't trying to tell him how appealing he was. He was telling him and guessing how awful the things he was about to do were. He's taunting him, saying, look, look how awful this humiliating not telling Jesus you won't show up like he's saying you will show up and you're about to die and, and, and he's taunting him he's mocking him but how does Jesus respond Jesus doesn't respond cowering like Adam and Eve did or Adam being silent in the garden of Eden when temptation was coming Jesus stands up and he holds his ground and he resists the temptations of Satan and he pushes back against the taunts of Satan and says this is he doesn't say this audibly but this is the plan that me and the Father have devised, and I am sticking to it. I am obeying him to the end, no matter what. And so Satan is not manipulating him. Judas is not manipulating him. These soldiers are not manipulating him. Jesus is willingly picking up this cup to drink it himself. No one is making him do it. And so he's facing enemies now. Judas, who betrayed him, is coming into this garden. All these men, hundreds of men, are coming into this garden to arrest him. Jesus, has, he's resisted this urge to put down the cup. He, he's committed to it to say, I am going to do this. I'm in charge of this, and I'm seeing it through. I am going to that cross. I am going to drink down the cup of God's wrath. But we see last second, not just that Jesus, in this story at least, last second, not just that Jesus picks up the cup, but that he holds on to it, even when Peter tries to knock it out of his hand. Did you know what Peter does here? God love Peter. I, I, I don't totally understand him. I think his personality is the opposite end of the spectrum from mine. But he is regularly just doing things that are brash, doing things that are reactive in the moment, trying to overestimate what he's capable of here. But even as he hears Jesus tell these soldiers in verse 8, you came for me, let these men go. He's talking about Peter and John and these other disciples. Even as Peter heard Jesus say, Soldiers, let these guys go. Like Peter knows that's what Jesus wants, is for these guys to leave. Peter, A, he has a sword, verse 10, which I don't understand why he has a sword or why his friends let him have a sword, knowing his personality. But he takes it out, and he struck the high priest's servant, this guy named Malchus, and cut off his ear. I would be very curious. Sometimes I wish the Bible was recorded like a video. We could see what actually, how do you cut off a person's ear? Like, you know you got to be swinging that thing fast, and you know you're not aiming at their ear. Like, he's probably aiming at his head, just generally speaking. 
he is seeking in the moment to just to overreact. Because there's hundreds of men there with swords. And he's a fisherman. And there's like 11, 10 other disciples with him. And then Jesus, who's made it clear he wants to be arrested. And Peter pulls out his sword like, I'll fix this. And tries to cut off a guy's head. Like, what is he doing? Like, he, and you, Jesus, I don't even know what would have been going through his mind because he has far infinitely more important things on his mind and heart at that point in time. But just being like, what is he doing? Like, uh, and, and he corrects Peter. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus, pick, think of the mercy that Jesus picks up that bloody, gross spear of that man and miraculously put it back on his head. Even this man who would come and arrest him and be part of the process and put him to death. But Jesus tells Peter, put your sword into your side. That is not how this works. Like we are not fighting force with force. Like I mu- that's where he introduces this idea of the cup. I must drink this cup, Peter. Like don't try to knock it out of my hand. Like it is for me to drink. God the Father gave it for me, and we are, there's no way around it. We're not seeking to get creative or aggressive or inventive. This is the plan, Peter. So much unfolds in that garden that John doesn't record for us, so we don't have time to elaborate on that. But I'll just note here that we don't fight worldly powers with worldly weapons. Like when we're... Uh, when we are opposed by people of the world, when we are opposed with worldly tactics, we do not fight it that way, but with God's power. We obey God the Father. We do what he is calling us to do. So we see here in this text that Jesus symbolically, he sees the cup, except for John. He approaches the cup. He picks up the cup willingly. He holds on to the cup, even when Peter is trying to knock it out of his hands, like, no, this is mine to drink. And though it's beyond the scope of today's text, we're going to see in the next several weeks, ultimately Jesus puts it up to his lips and drinks it. It's not just some idea that's been in his mind that he's willing to do until it actually comes time to do it. We see just a matter of hours later, Jesus picks up that cup and cuts it up, puts it to his own lips and drinks it. nothing left in that cup. He drinks all of God's wrath and power down his throat as he dies upon the cross. The voluntary nature of it has been what has stretched my heart the most. That Jesus didn't become a sacrifice. He didn't become a drinker of that cup because anybody was making him do it. But he did it because he wanted to. He did it because he loved us. He did it because he has mercy and compassion on us and says, I want to drink that blood too. I don't want them to drink this. I will drink it for them. He drank that cup of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to drink it, so that, that our cup could be empty when the chain was nailed to that, that there would be not a drop, not a grain, not anything, not an atom, a molecule, any part of God's wrath for our sin left in the cup for us to drink that blood, even though we should have drank the entirety of it down for eternity. He drank it entirely down in that moment upon the cross. And 
see a little picture of this in this story even we read today where Jesus is saying, you came for me, let's eat me. Like it's him stepping forward and saying, I will take this. I don't deserve this, but I will take it so that they might be set free. It's him telling God the Father, I will drink this awful cup. I know how horrific it is. I will drink it down for them. Like I will drink it down in their place. I want to tell you as every individual in this room that there is a cup of God's wrath for your sin. There's none of us who could say that our cup has just always been empty. Like that, that, that there was no wrath, there is no wrath to be drank. Every one of us has a cup that, that, is, that could be or would be filled with the wrath of God. And that cup for your sin, God's wrath for your sin, that cup that contains his wrath for your sin will be drank. It was either drank by Christ on the cross in your place or it will be drank by you. It was either drank by him in its entirety upon the cross so that you might be freed and forgiven or it will someday be handed to you when it comes time for judgment. And God will have every right to do that. To, to hand you the cup of his wrath for your sins and he will make you drink it for eternity in hell. Praise God that we don't have to face that, that we don't have to drink that down ourselves, that Jesus drank it for us. Like so that our cup could be empty, that we could know it's been dealt with, there's not any of it left. So he drank it that we might be freed of the responsibility to drink. And I tell you today, if you have never bowed your knee to Christ, if you've never put your trust in him and said, please forgive me for my sin, I tell you today, if you will do that, if you will cast yourself upon him and say, I know upon the cross you died for my sin, that you drank my cup down, he will gladly be one who's done that for you and say, your cup is empty. There is none left for you to drink, not now, not ever. He will gladly be the one who drinks it for you. He drank it not just so that our cup of God's wrath could be empty. We would not have to drink it. But he also drank this cup so that, positively speaking, we could drink the cup of God's blessing. It's not just that he got rid of this awful cup for us, but it, that was part of it in him dying on the cross. But now as one who's been raised from the dead, he offers us another thing we don't deserve, the cup of God's blessing. Saying, you can drink of this, of God's favor, of his love, of his compassion, his care, his provision for you, drink of this. And he hands us a sweet cup that we don't deserve to drink, but he gives to us nonetheless, that we get to share in. I want to encourage you as, as my church family to be thinking about who you need to be sharing this good news with. Because every person in your life has a cup of God's wrath that either they will drink or that Christ will have drunk for them. And people need to know that. People need to be confronted with that and told that there is a Savior who's willing to drink it on their behalf. Be thinking, be praying about who you can share this good news with, this good news of Jesus. Even next week, we've been having some uh, materials out in the lobby with, with tracts and scriptures and things like that that we want you to be reading and thinking, who can I use this to talk to? But even next Sunday, we're starting some new life education classes at 9 o'clock. We have a class that starts next Sunday that's called The Bridge. And it's a class that's designed for believers to bring unbelieving friends to 
and to, to talk about the good news of Christ, to, to talk about what the separation between us and God, but how God has bridged that, how he has sent his son uh, to take the cup for us, to, to, to be able to reconcile us to God. I would encourage you to be thinking, could I bring someone to come to that with me, that I at least invite them to it? And please do not do a bait and switch on people, where you just say, hey, there's this nice class that you can come to, and then wham, like we're going to talk about Jesus and confront you with your sin. Let them know what it's about. Let them know, hey, man, I care about you. Like, I, I want you to know the same forgiveness and grace that God has shown to me. I'd love to have you come with me to church and be a part of a class uh, for a couple months where we talk about these things. And invite them to come and see what the Lord does in them. And if they don't take you up on that, don't think that's the only way to talk to them. Like, keep talking to them. Keep praying to them. Keep seeking to have conversation with them. But I wanted you to know about that class and encourage you to be thinking who you may be able to invite to that class and if you'd like to know more i'd be glad to connect you with the right people for that or you can reach out to the church office and we'll talk to any of you more details so we see that jesus lifted his cup he picked the cup willingly gladly so that we might not have to lift up that cup of god's wrath but i want to mention as we as we move to the last section here that jesus helps us to lift the bitter cups that God's fire has in store for us. Because I don't want any of us, and Scripture would not allow us, to believe this idea that, well, now that God's wrath, that cup has been removed from me, that Christ drank it, there's no bitter cups left for me to drink anymore. That it is smooth sailing, just pleasant things to drink down year after year after year of life. There are still bitter cups that God the Father has for us. He, and they're not of his wrath, they're not of his anger, they're not of his judgment, but there are still bitter cups that God places upon us and says, you need to drink this cup. And I think we can learn from Jesus and how he approached his cup that night to see how we should approach ours, the bitter cups that God may still have in our life. Because I think just as Jesus asked, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me, we can ask the same question. We should ask the same question. Though it's a different cup, it's not the cup of God's wrath, there's still bitter cups that are set before us. And I think each of us, if we're a follower of Jesus, should ask that same question. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is hard. There are many bitter cups that the Lord has even setting before many of us in this room right now. I know of some of them. I know there's a lot of them that I don't know. There are bitter cups that are either right in front of us now or that will be soon, maybe even this week or this year that unfolds. There are bitter cups that God puts in front of us. Some of them are these bitter cups of relational pain, relational suffering that we have with people where we are genuinely mistreated. We're mistreated by loved ones, betrayed by people. Jesus was betrayed here by face embarrassment, shame, rejection from people, these relational sufferings that sometimes get put into a cup, a bitter cup that's set before us that God places in front of us. There are physical sufferings. There are cups of bitterness that are filled with physical sufferings that God has uh, that he places before us where he has sickness that comes upon things we never would have asked for, never wished upon anyone. They're poured into the cup that God has for us to drink. Diseases that do not go away, 
pains that this ails me physically that cannot be dealt with in my own heart. Um, those same types of physical suffering are given to loved ones that we are caring for, that we're watching go through these things as part of the bitter cup that God puts before us to watch and to observe the, this, this pain and suffering and, and, and this death that is poured into bitter cups at times and suffering for us. Whether someday it's our own, that we face suffering that leads to death ourselves, or whether it's death of loved ones or friends. Even just in the last few weeks, there's been unexpected deaths among people that we know and love who um, that people from this room, people we know and love. Those deaths sometimes get poured into a bitter cup for us to drink suffering. We have mental and emotional suffering that is bitter and hard for us at times. We have deep seasons of depression and anxiety and worry we have been put into this cup for us to drink we all have bitter cups at times some of them stay bitter and it feels like god keeps refilling them but what do we do with that like sometimes we think that that we should just have sweetness in our cup to drink over and over and that god should just alleviate us of these sufferings but he puts a bitter cup in front of us and says take this off may be tempted in those times and may be tempted right now to run away from that to hide from that to insist this can't be what you have for me god to get angry at him to get frustrated at him we may want to refuse to pick it up but when we start to taste it to just spit it out we just want pure sweetness again i want to tell you it is okay it's even good i would say to lament it is good to express your pain and your your struggle to God the Father. Jesus even did that that night in the garden. He he made known his struggle to consume this cup. It's okay to request the removal of that cup. It's a, you turn water into wine, turn this bitter cup into a sweet cup, do something. It's okay to plead with the Lord even for him to change it. But there are times where he leaves the bitter cup in front of you and says you need to drink this. We can learn from Jesus' example that when that law is given to us, that he can help us, that the Holy Spirit can help us to say, I know in my heart of hearts that the cup, the worst cup has already been drank. The one cup that I should truly fear, that I should truly dread, has been drank for me. And when this bitter cup is placed before me, I know it is given to me by a God who loves me by a God who cares for me and knows how much this hurts and who knows how painful this is for me, but he is still calling me to drink it. Jesus drank the cup that God the Father took away. And he can help us to say, I see it, I know how awful it is, and I'm going to pick it up and I'm going to trust you, Father, and I'm going to drink it. There's a quote I I believe I have uh, on the screen from Charles Spurgeon, if we're able to, to pull that up. It'll be on two screens. This um, meant a lot to me this week. He wrote this, speaking even from this text. He said, drink the cup that your father gives you. However bitter it is, it is sweetened by the fact that he gives it to you. Shall not a true son of God drink the cup that his father presents to him? And then he goes on, there can be no harm in it, and it must work you some real good. So put up your sword. 
lift the cup here, Lord, to you be it this day. As we receive and let us praise your heart. But I want to encourage us when we, when we have bitter cups placed before us to know that the hand of the one giving it to us is, is giving us out. God the Father is not giving you. If you are a Christian, he is never pouring a cup in front of you out of anger and out of judgment and out of wrath and saying, drink this. We may not know exactly why he's spilling it. Just as like when we're little kids, I did not understand why my mom would pour that yellow tray lineage in that little cup for me to drink. I would have sworn if you asked me that she did not know what she was doing, that this thing was awful. There's no good that it could do. There must be another way, but there was a bigger picture at play. Same is true for us when God the Father pours out a bitter cup and maybe sometimes keeps refilling it with bitterness. We must press in to the refilling that he wants, that he loves us even in our bitterness. And he can help us to lift it and to drink it, not, not being made to drink it, but drinking it. And I'm grateful that Jesus, though he drank this cup down to his disciples, that he was willing to drink that cup, that he could drink it, that he can help me we long for the day when those bitter cups are put away forever where there will be no more when Jesus returns someday there will be no more bitterness for us to choke down there will be no more bitterness for us to choke down but it will be pure blessing forever and ever and ever amen